Modern Monetary Theory, or MMT for short, is the new kid on the economic theory block, and it has a growing fan club among progressive Democrats, including the outspoken representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The most widely followed popularizer, though, is Stephanie Kelton, professor of economics at Stony Brook University, author of the book The Deficit Myth, and formerly both the senior economic advisor to the 2016 Bernie Sanders presidential campaign and the chief economist for the Democrats on the Senate Budget Committee. To help us make sense of this theory, today we're privileged to be joined by Luigi Zangales and Bethany McLean, co-hosts of the podcast Capital Isn't. Dr. Zingales is a professor of entrepreneurship and finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, and Ms. McLean is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, a columnist at Yahoo Finance, and a contributor to CNBC. We hope you'll give their show a listen, especially their August 2020 episode on this topic. Together we discuss just what does this theory posit. Is it really the case that deficits don't matter? Can governments like the U.S., which enjoy a dominant currency like the dollar, really print money and spend without concern for the amount of national debt this might amass? And can they pull that off without necessarily igniting high inflation? Stay tuned as we discuss all this and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Today's episode is the most people we have ever had on today's episode, which is very exciting. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Roshan Langani and Eric Olson. For any new listeners or new viewers, my name is Adrian Nicholson. We are here, as always, to help you learn the strategies and tactics to navigate towards a fuller, higher impact, and more joyful life. As a reminder, we are available on streaming platforms on the internet or through your phone. We also have a YouTube channel you can find by typing in Retirement Lifestyle Show in your search box, and you'll have access to over 150 videos please like and subscribe. Lastly, check out our website, retirementlifestyleshow.com. That contains all of our content. Rosha, I'm passing the virtual mic over to you to introduce our guest today and the topic. Let's go. Excellent. Thank you, Adrian. Great introduction. We are more than excited to have Luigi Zingales and Bethany McLean with us. They're hosts of the show Podcast Capital Isn't. And their website where you can check out all their episode is Capitalism, C-A-P-I-T-A-L-I-S-N-T.com. A little bit of background. Uh, Luigi is a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And Bethany McLean is a journalist, and she's contributing editor to Vanity Fair. Uh, she's known for writing on the Enron scandal in the 2008 financial crisis. And we are more than excited to have you today. Our topic we're going to talk about is uh, modern monetary theory. And this was suggested by one of our listeners. So first, Luigi and Bethany, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Luigi and Bethany, first of all, I just did uh, survey, uh, listen to you the episode that you previously had recorded on the um, on modern monetary theory. I think if I recall correctly, it was in August of 2020. Really wonderfully done. 
very informative. I loved also the fact that you had a guest, John Cochran, there. And so for our listeners, we do absolutely want to point you to that episode itself if you have uh, an interest stimulated by the conversation we're going to have today to go deeper, because I'm sure it will. that is a very much deeper treatment than we'll be able to uh, uh, accomplish here today. But uh, the whole the whole show is just really I think provocative in thinking about evaluating capitalism and what its capabilities are and um, where where it sings and and where it's uh, where where it it could be <laughs> reappraised and by the way uh, Luigi and Bethany for your benefit our listeners would know this already in a different way we've come at that same question and um, there's a number of guests that we've had here that have really thought about the way in which they use business to accomplish much more than just a financial bottom line, but also a social, environmental, and spiritual bottom line. And we've had some amazing guests in from the Philippines and from uh, as from Thailand, and formerly and now in the U.S., as well as from Mozambique, who've come and talked about their businesses and how they're using how they're using. Um, entrepreneurial approaches to alleviate poverty and uh, other kinds of social maladies. So anyway, thank you for your commitment to evaluating this subject and for being our guest. So I, I wanted I had, uh, wanted to just frame the question that my client had posed. And I think what I'm going to do is just start from the general and then work to the specific here, here just quickly. So I think the broad c- concern that I hear from my clients, and this is not new to the inter- uh, not new to the advent of the term modern monetary theory, but it is to what extent is our society's apparent commitment to spending more than we take in in tax revenues, and then the accumulation of that of that growing body of national debt, is that an issue? And in the past, it was a debate of how much, and then I think what modern monetary theorists have done, and you certainly correct me if I'm wrong, and by the way, we invite correction, so there's no, we love to learn, and telling us, no, Eric, you're flat wrong is a great way for us and our listeners to learn, so that's just fine. But the, uh, but the perception, at least, is, is that modern monetary theory, for the first time, went beyond what anything that Keynesian economists had said, in that, hey, there are times when it makes sense to deficit spend, and, and, and transformed it to, well, anytime there's anything less than full employment, you, if you have a printing press and you're a, a sovereign currency, you just go right ahead and, and uh, print what you need to print and uh, borrow what you need to borrow, and that way you won't have uh, slack capacity. And so that set in motion, that general framework seemed to set in motion a political conversation that said, all right, well, now the, the gloves are off and we can just go to limitless amounts of spending and borrowing and money printing, uh, and and lost at least the political conversation where some of the constraints maybe that the theorists themselves had introduced. So with that as backdrop, help help my clients understand why they either should get ready for the collapse of the civilization, or they should uh, ad- instead feel great relief, like the uh, many of the adherents of this are saying that this is going to usher in a golden age, or something in between. How's that for a framing of the problem? That, that's pretty dramatic. Um, yes, well, that's good radio right there. Absolutely. So uh, I think that uh, our listeners probably will remember uh, the rise of Ronald Reagan and the campaign he did on lowering taxes. And uh, part of uh, that campaign was based on the so-called uh, Laffer curve. I don't know if you remember 
the story, but is 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 an economist that said that basically, if you decrease the marginal tax rate, uh, you are gonna induce people to work so hard and to report more taxes that your tax revenues will actually go up. Okay, so it seems like uh, an opportunity to have the cake and eat it too. Is is kind of uh, fantastic. You have lower marginal tax rates and the government gets more taxes. How can you refuse that? Now, what is interesting is the Laffer curve is either obvious or wrong, and most likely uh, in the way it was interpreted was wrong. And then you will explain in a second why I make this analogy, because at some level, the, the Laffer curve is obvious that uh, if you tax people 100%, you get zero revenue because nobody's going to work, Right. So if you uh, are at 100% tax rate and you decrease a little bit the taxes, probably what uh, Laffer was saying is correct. Okay? So in a sense, there is an element of truth in the Laffer curve. Now, the way it was used was saying that at the moment in the United States, if you decrease marginal tax rate, revenues will go up. And we did the experiment and was false. And basically, every country that has done the experiment has been false. So they didn't drop as much as you would expect otherwise. So there is a compensating effect. But the fact that you reduce the marginal tax rates and revenue go up is not true. However, it was a fantastic political sort of uh, trope to uh, basically reduce tax rates. So why do I say that? Because the MM theory, uh, which uh, I think Krugman said is not modern, is not really about monetary, it's not even a theory, but uh, uh, the MM theory is uh, really very similar, except that it's from the left. Okay, so uh, what they are saying, they are saying that, uh, yes, if you control your currency, so if you're not a country like uh, Italy, for example, the country where I come from, uh, that is part of the uh, Euro area, so they, uh, Italy cannot print its own currency. Uh, now, we, we want to talk about uh, later countries like uh, Argentina, who are in the middle, but if you are a, a large country like the United States that is able to have people accept their money as a final uh, uh, form of uh, storage of wealth, um, and you are below uh, productive capacity, you can print a little bit more of money, and uh, you're going to have uh, basically a little bit more of GDP. So is this uh, argument possible in some situation and etc.? Absolutely. Okay? Uh, now, is it in general true that you can print all money you want and uh, not worry about uh, inflation or anything like that? Absolutely not. Uh, now, the, the term when you say the government has control of its currency or monetary sovereignty <clears throat> is a little bit tricky because the United States <clears throat> clearly uh, have a unique privilege in the world that people take uh, dollars payment everywhere in the world. Okay, so uh, the United States have what some economists call an exorbitant privilege that they can pay for their import in... Uh, dollars and they don't need to get uh, anything else so they they print dollars and they get foreign goods now this is not true for most countries in the world even even japan 
uh, they, they, people might accept some yen, but eventually people want to convert yen into dollar or their own currency. So uh, that's a little bit more tricky for other countries. But uh, in, for the United States, uh, there is clearly a huge demand for dollars in the world. And so you can play this game a bit more than other countries. So if you go back to Argentina, Argentina has tried to play this game Ain't work. <laughs> uh, ain't working because is uh, uh, the the moment you start printing pesos, people are afraid that you have too many pesos. They try to convert pesos into dollars, and all of a sudden you have inflation instantaneously. Now, the best example for MM theory is actually Japan. Japan they print yen, and uh, people are still willing to hold yen. First of all, there are two things that are quite important. There is a, a history in Japan of the yen being a very strong currency, so people are attached to that because of that. Uh, there will be a day in which you realize that the yen is not such a strong currency, and that, that day when you realize is a bit too late. And second, there is still quite a bit of savings in, the United, in, in Japan so that uh, most of the debt, most of the Japanese debt is actually held by Japanese institutions, and most of these institutions are forced to buy that debt. So uh, Japan is in a very drug economy kind of system that works until it doesn't. And so I think that uh, uh, the long story short is, uh, can the government print more money and uh, push the economy a little bit farther? Uh, I think that in some situation, the answer is definitely yes. Uh, this is what, uh, ironically, Trump has done. Trump has uh, lowered taxes, increased the deficit, pushed the economy farther before the COVID recession, and, uh, and worked fine. Uh, so uh, it is possible to do a little bit. Now, what is too much? This is the, the problem is nobody knows really what is too much. And you only know after you have realized, and that's too late. So that's where it's pretty scary. Well, no, no Luke, I have a, a follow-up question for you. Does this make you a fan of cryptocurrency? Your description is what a lot of crypto people say. <laughs> that's why you got to go all in on crypto. So. <laughs> Except I don't really see the uh, use value of cryptocurrency. In a sense, the, to me... Uh, the real use value of cryptocurrency in this moment is for uh, Russian oligarchs or um, corrupt uh, Saudi princes to store some of their money as an edge. So if I have my money illegally accumulated or accumulated legally but in a very repressive countries and I fear revolution, um, and I have a lot of it, um, you know, uh, putting $10 million into something that uh, might be worthless, but uh, with more probability, uh, I can access it anywhere in the world when I'm running away as a pretty high value if I have a billion, okay? Because uh, having a billion and having 990 uh, million doesn't make a, a huge difference, uh, but having zero, having 10 million may make a huge difference. And so as an edge against extreme situation, uh, and um, I think that the, the, the cryptos are pretty good. Uh, 
uh, for anything else, I, I don't see the, the purpose. What has always intrigued me about MMT and where we are now as, as a country is that the, it's, it's being enacted, even though most people would fight against the idea that it is MMT, but that's essentially what we're doing. And essentially, by the way, what President Trump started doing. It's being done now under the guise of helping those at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder because it, the spending obviously will help them. And the idea that we can get to full unemployment will, will help. And this Fed is one that, this Federal Reserve is one that believes that unemployment is the worst Scrooge for those at the lower end of, of, of the socioeconomic um, um, spectrum, that the best thing we can do to help is make sure that there's full employment. But the, the irony of all of this is that the thing that wrecks MMT is inflation. And inflation is the thing that takes the biggest bite out of those at the bottom end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So the very people who the, this policy is meant to help are also the ones who bear the brunt of it when it goes wrong. And that's what I think makes me most most skeptical. So that, that point is very obvious, right? And so then really, what, what are we doing? given that the very people we're, meant, we're, we're supposedly helping are the ones who are going to suffer the most if this experiment goes wrong. But I think that uh, Bethany raises an excellent point, which is we need to separate uh, the economic idea from the political idea. And unfortunately, in the United States, the two have been mixed so much that it's hard to tell apart. But really, the first uh, proponent and implementer of, of so-called uh, uh, modern monetary theory, even if maybe it was not called that way, was Adolf Hitler. Uh, Hitler, when he took over power in thirty-three, he started to expand massively uh, the monetary base, paying for rearmament with that money, and kind of forcing German people and then all the people in the other countries that uh, Germany later uh, occupied to all the German uh, mark. That was kind of a, a very effective way to expand uh, military power, delaying the cost, and, and at some level, not having the cost because it is true that Germany was coming out of a period of deflation uh, with uh, uh, a, a lot of unemployment, and, uh, and uh, Hitler fixed that. So uh, one thing is, can we use uh, money to uh, revitalize the economy? In some situation, yes. There are some consequences, etc. And then the second is what we use the, the money for. Okay. Now, the, the moment you say we use it for the green economy, everything is beautiful. Uh, in, uh, if you use it for armament, that is terrible. But uh, the principle is the same. So I think we, we should be very cognizant of that touched on something, uh, Bethany, what you just said. I found it really interesting in, in your podcast um, episode, The Right and Wrong of MMPT, that was um, from October 2020. You, you had a phrase you used. You said it's the um, ultimate expression of privilege. Uh, and, can, and you and Luigi had a brief discussion on that. Can you share, go over that again? I just found that incredibly interesting. Well, I think what I what I meant is that it's the privilege of a of a wealthy country that controls its own currency to be able to engage in in MMT and the privilege of a country that believes that other countries are willing to buy its debt. 
But I think now that I'm, I'm now that we have inflation in this country and we're realizing who bears the cost, I think there's another way to think of the privilege, which is that it's also the privilege of those who don't have to worry about how much it costs to fill their tank with gas or how much it costs to put food on the table to believe that they can engage in policies that ostensibly help people because then we all feel really good about ourselves, but actually may may have a really, really dangerous cost. So I think there are several levels to the privilege. Luigi, would you answer that differently? Not really. I think that I will emphasize that uh, this privilege is what economists call the exorbitant privilege of the United States by being the world reserve currency. Uh, you can pay for your input in uh, printed paper. and uh, And that's a enormous benefit that uh, has been going on since World War II, uh, but is ironically is a benefit that is really at uh, risk now. Uh, and uh, abusing of it by printing more and etc. is only guaranteeing that this uh, um, goose from the golden eggs is going to die sooner. So I think it, it is a real, uh, real issue. There's also on that note, and and I don't know what you all think about this, and but but I, I've been some people have raised this as a concern with me, and so it's something I'm mulling over. That there's this, it puts the 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 Fed in a in a really odd position. You know, one of the tenets of the United States is that the Fed is an independent central bank, right? And yet, if we have to keep our debt cheap, if we have to keep the interest rate on our debt cheap. What does that mean for the nexus between fiscal policy and, and monetary policy? Can the Fed stay independent when the Treasury and the financing of the United States depend on our interest rates staying low? Does that put pressure on the Fed, for instance, to continue its 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 policy of of buying um, of of quantitative easing, of buying assets in order to reduce the long term the interest rate? Does that put pressure on the Fed to keep interest rates low instead of raising interest rates in order to counter inflation? How independent can the central bank be at a time when the United States needs interest rates just to, uh, to stay really low. So Bethany, sorry, Bethany has uh, explained very well what we economists call fiscal dominance. That when you have a debt that is too large, uh, the central bank has to help finance that debt. And by uh, because of that burden, they can't really control interest rates. And uh, as uh, because uh, if uh, they wanted to increase interest rate to fight inflation, uh, will make uh, the financing of the debt impossible and uh, or too expensive. And so as a result, they accommodate and uh, the answer is inflation. So uh, <coughs> hold on. Uh, let me, yeah, so let me, let me just uh, let put some numbers on question that. before that. So is Bethany, the answer to your question <laughs> simply they can't be independent? I, I I don't know. I think we're in uncharted territory here, right? And I think, I don't even know if we're going to find out because if some of the forces driving inflation prove to be transitory, as the Fed has said, and as some people still believe, then we may not end up in a situation where the Fed needs to raise interest rates in order to, in, in order to blunt inflation. And so we may not find out how independent the central bank can actually be, but we may find out. So I think it's going to be, I think we're headed for really interesting times. But Luigi, yeah, I think that, that just, I agree with you. I think that the notion of independence Independence has been, I think, exaggerated uh, everywhere in the literature. So, so what does it mean to be independent? Uh, maybe it means that you cannot be fired instantaneously. Uh, first of all, there was some discussion 
during the Trump uh, administration whether actually the chairman could be fired. But uh, uh, first of all, you want to be probably reappointed uh, for four years after. So uh, there is some sense of uh, uh, loyalty there. But more importantly, uh, if, if I'm telling you, imagine that, Roshan, you are the, the next chairman. And I'm telling you that if you raise interest rates, uh, then uh, the deficit uh, will uh, skyrocket because we have to pay a higher rate on our debt. The deficit will skyrocket. And as a result, uh, we need to cut uh, uh, food stamp for uh, 10 million people uh, who are going to die uh, of starvation in the street. I'm exaggerating a bit, but let's say. Uh, do you feel confident in doing that? And if you kind of cave in... Are you not independent or are you simply a human being? Uh, so I think that they are putting you in a situation that is really, really difficult uh, to, to handle. That's what fiscal dominance is, that uh, you are so trapped by the, the conditions that uh, you can't escape. Right. So I want to just put some numbers to that because it's one thing, you know, when you start actually looking at the, the real numbers that are being spent, uh, in 2020, the U.S. federal government brought in $3.4 trillion of revenue. So I grant that 2020 was a bit odd in so far as we had a, a global pandemic. We spent, uh, we spent $6.6 trillion. And uh, of that, there was a certain amount that was known as mandatory spending and then a certain amount known as discretionary spending. But one part of that was spending interest to finance the debt. And so now the debt is $30 trillion. So if you have interest rates that are low, and I'll just use just to make it the math super simple as for our listeners, let's say that the interest is 1%. To, that's the cost of the federal government having to borrow to cover $30 trillion of debt. I'll just do the math. 1% of that is it's costing them $300 billion a year to cover that interest cost. $300 billion. And that's of that, they're essentially we're saying almost a tenth of the of their receipts in 2020 then would be um, would be earmarked for covering that interest cost. So what happens if the interest uh, the interest rate rises? So let's just say triple that, and the debt grows a little bit. Now instead of it being 300 billion, it's one trillion dollars that's being uh, that is the cost of financing that debt. And so now you're taking a trillion dollars of receipts, even if you boost receipts to four trillion, but 25% of the money that you're taking in is being used to, to cover just the interest cost on what you've already spent and haven't paid for. You're, now you're on this sort of snowball, it seems, snowballing um, effect of more and more debt, more and more interest uh financing cost or, or debt financing cost and more and more uh, at debt being piled onto the existing 30 trillion so that that seems to be the cycle that you have to figure out how to how to unwind it you've talked about what it does as one effect of that is it hampers the fed potentially from combating inflation but i think there are other adverse effects as well i know that a lot of our clients have been pushed to leave um, bonds as a as a portion of their portfolio because they feel like they can't afford to own them 
because they're not doing anything for them except maybe dampening some volatility. So they have to then swing over more and more into risk assets, changing the composition of their portfolio, at least from what we've historically considered to be an appropriate um, portfolio mix for people who are in their retirement. Your thoughts about that? So first of all, I want to make sure that your listeners understand that your hypothesis of tripling interest rates is not uh, uh, science fiction, because if they were tripling, we'll only go to 3%, which was uh, considered very low until a few years ago. So we're not talking about uh, uh, some uh, science fiction experiment. We're talking about uh, a return back to normal uh, in, in any form or shape. And, and by the way, with an inflation... Forget 7%, even with inflation of 4%, 3% nominal is negative real rate. So I think that that is, is a really sort of a important uh, uh, point to make. And, uh, and, but you are raising an even more important point, which is uh, the uh, retiree in general, but the savers in general, are put in a very uncomfortable position. Because even if you want to get uh, uh, treasury inflation-protected bonds, TIPS, uh, they have what negative two point five percent real rate. Uh, so you're basically paying the government to store your money. And uh, if you had planned uh, to uh, have a nice retirement with your income, uh, you cannot afford to that. So I think that uh, one aspect that we have not uh, fully considered, in my view, is uh, how much everybody has been pushed into stock. As a result of that, this has been kind of a, a um, really taxation of the frugal uh, and the risk averse uh, in a way that is uh, uh, very uh, ironic because those are sort of uh, uh, virtues that we generally value and uh, also made everybody dependent on the stock market because now uh, there's not only the fiscal dominance, there is the stock market dominance that uh, as a president, I'm not going to be reelected if the stock market drops 20%, uh, because all the rate I read will be up in arm. It's not just uh, some uh, rich people that uh, lose money. It's the rate I read that say, I don't uh, eat this this year. There's a great quote from an economist um, named Mohammed El Arian right after the Fed did the rescue of the financial system in the spring of 2020, and he said the Fed is now hostage to the stock market, um, and that, that backs up the point Luigi just just made. I almost think of this in two distinct periods, and I'd love to hear agreement or disagreement with this, but part of where we are now is a reaction to the years after the global financial crisis, where the Fed employed many of the same policies that it's employing now, um, resulting in what in many people's mind has been a bubble in asset prices, even heading into the pandemic and the gigantic um, rescue package that, that, that we did then. So there was an argument in, in financial circles. In fact, most smart money managers I know believed that we were in a huge bubble in asset prices. And there's a lot of worry among all the people I know about in, about all the young people in the market who not only were not around in the days of Enron, but don't even remember the global financial crisis, much less any period where interest rates were actually rising. So we have a whole generation of people who are used to super low interest rates and asset prices that only go up, enabled essentially by Federal Reserve policy. And so then we have the pandemic and we have that same Fed policy taken on, on steroids. Right, even more spending, even more support, um, support for all corners of the market from 
the safest of assets to the riskiest of assets. And the if you believe there was a bubble in asset prices, that, that bubble just went crazy. And the argument was among economists at the time, or at least among policymakers, was that, well, there wasn't inflation in the years after the financial crisis, so there won't be inflation now. And I think the mistake they made was equating those two periods and something is different now. And the question is, what's different and is it is it permanently different? But the fact that there wasn't inflation in the years after the financial crisis provided ammunition of sorts for those who said this is the right policy because we can always argue history is the same when we want it to be the same, right? <laughs> and so, and so there's this there's a feeling among progressives that they got talked out of spending as much as they needed to in the wake of the global financial crisis by these worries about debt and budgets. And damn it, they're not making that mistake again because the the hawks the last time around were wrong. So they're going to be wrong this time too. And I, so the question to me becomes what's 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 different now? Um, but I. To back up to the actual the actual question, I think most people I I know at least, and I, I can't help myself from being somewhat of a, of a of a of a cynic, think that the markets are in really dangerous territories. That we've been in this in this period for over a decade now, where assets only go up, and where people have forgotten what risk is. Yeah, I mean, you brought up some really, I mean, both of you brought up some really interesting uh, concepts, and it kind of just seems like it's just like a culmination of things that are really just you know, benefiting the the markets and it's causing people to take on more risk. Like when there's periods of high inflation, a good way to hedge against that inflation is equities, stocks. And and also given just like the interest rate environment with the zero interest rate policy that's been, that has been going on with certain years, it's just kind of fueling investors just to take on more risk. And that's just really interesting just depending on what your time horizon is or like what state you are in as an investor, if you're someone just like getting started out, you probably are just having to take on like more risk and you're looking at just maybe even alternatives to the market. And that's why you see people like looking at cryptocurrency or just other alternatives, which is just bringing in a lot more risk in people's portfolio. And we also had a, a podcast too, Eric mentioned this earlier, where people you know, are moving away from bonds because again, they just can't keep pace with inflation and that kind of can put people in a tough position like where you're close to retiring. You have to kind of look at your portfolio where you can't take on that much risk. And one of the solutions in the past was, was bonds. They were kind of had that inverse relationship to equities. They, they paid you and also kind of were a good way to store your money where that's kind of being taken away more, which is... Com- which uh, brings in more bubbles and people taking on a lot more risk than they otherwise would consider. So all these like policies and what's going on is kind of really changing how people are looking at the investing world, which is really interesting. So Bethany, you asked the question also about the two periods, and I just wanted to respond to that. So I do think you're you're absolutely right. I think the 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 groundwork was laid when the we had the massive response to the the financial crisis in 2008, and and there wasn't inflation, and so I, 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 precisely the same policy. Why why was it different? My understanding is more from a math or an economic. Um, equality where it's not just the money uh, so there was enormous amounts of money supply that was being added but the velocity of that money was was very it wasn't accelerating actually it declined it was cut i think roughly cut in half and as a result you had m times v you didn't get the the price rise here i think that that we haven't had that sharp drop off in velocity of money and as a result 
um, now you flood the system with that money and that contributes to that inflation along with all the other you know I fully acknowledge the uh, the constraints supply constraints and the impact that that's had just on the supply demand imbalance but I don't I don't in fact maybe the one the two of you do understand why there's been a difference in velocity between those two periods because I think that for at least me for me is a is a really interesting distinction between those two phases I want to turn it back that one over to Luigi and also have 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 you uh, answered the part of the question that I don't understand which is what is velocity of money what does that mean and why should we care about it and then, and then to Eric's question, why is that? Why is it different this time? So, velocity, in very simple term, is how fast you spend the money uh, you receive. So, if you receive some money and uh, you hold onto it under your mattress, uh, it's not a create uh, buying pressure. It's actually doing the opposite, and uh, and that uh, contributes to uh, to slow down demand and potentially slow down prices, and. Uh, uh, vice versa, in uh, if you receive the money and you spend it right away, that uh, it contributes to increased demand and increased prices. And uh, and what uh, as economists we fear are potentially self-enforcing loops because uh, if you are in a situation of inflation, um, of course you don't want to hold on to your money because uh, the longer you hold on, the the less uh, is worth it. And so you literally spend it right away, and that tends to increase velocity, and increase velocity, increase prices, and that, that's the hyperinflation loop. Um, and then there is also the opposite, is deflation, which is, by the way, is what happens with, the, uh, with Bitcoin. So uh, if, you know, if you think that your money is going to be worth more tomorrow than today, you don't want to spend it. And it's just the, the, I always tell in class, the, the guy who bought the first transaction in Bitcoin for a real good was a guy who bought a couple of slices of pizza with the Bitcoin. At um, latest time I check, that pizza cost him 150 million. Okay? <laughs> so I said, that, I'm not sure he digested well that pizza because uh, it's really in his stomach. So th that's a way to say, if you expect your money to increase in value, you're not going to spend it. Now, if you're not going to spend it, you're not going to create demand. And so... Uh, prices are going to drop, and so the value of money is going to keep going up. That's the deflation uh, loop. So that, that's the reason why it's difficult to balance uh, the two situations. Now, why the situation is different? I think the answer is very simple, is where the money went. I think that uh, if you uh, basically give a lot of money or a lot of liquidity to uh, super rich people, uh, they're not going to spend it right away. And even when they spend it, they're going to spend it in stuff that doesn't count on the CPI. So if the price of Monet double, uh, first of all, you don't cry because neither you nor I own a Monet. No, we are planning to buy one, by the way. At least I don't. Maybe you do, Eric. But uh, uh, And it uh, doesn't enter the CPI. So yeah, the price of, uh, of Monet, and you look at the world of art, uh, prices have gone crazy, but not only recently, they've gone crazy also after the 2008 financial crisis, right? Because uh, rich people have a lot of liquidity were spending in money, but that did not impact inflation. If you send $2,000 uh, to every family, uh, you know what? They're going to spend it. Uh, especially, they've been locked down for a year. Finally, they can go out and spend it. They're going to spend it. Uh, and... Uh, they're going to spend in what? In a car 
oh, I don't like uh, public transportation that much because the virus is still around. I want to buy a car. And uh, I just received $2,000. I'm going to buy it. So everybody's going to buy the car. And you know what? Uh, cars are not going to respond uh, that, that well, even without the shortages of uh, chips, etc. Now, if you add shortages, then you're really in trouble. But forget the, the shortages. If 40% uh, uh, more of people want to buy a car now, you're not going to have a 40% increase in car overnight. So uh, when demand outstrips supply, you have only one thing, which is increasing prices. So, Luigi, what you just described, do you believe that inflation is transitory now or do you think it's here to stay? So this is the, what, the $1 trillion question. I think a lot of it is to do in how much this is ingrained in uh, uh, expectations and how much of uh, uh, competition will bring uh, prices down. So, so let's take the car example. So imagine, and I'm exaggerating here, I mean, imagine there's a 40% increase in the demand for cars. And uh, imagine there are no bottlenecks. The bottlenecks make things even worse, but supply cannot uh, keep up with demand. So it's only natural that producers, when, when there is a situation like this, they're going to increase their supply a bit or plan to increase their supply. It's taking a little while. But in the meantime, they're going to increase prices. Okay. Now, uh, do you think that, uh, 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 number one, uh, as the more supply will come in the line, on the line, they are going to have an excess supply, so they're going to push prices down or, uh, or not? So that's uh, how long will it take for supply to respond and uh, how they're going to push prices down. The second is, if I am a, a worker and uh, I'm on a fixed wage, and uh, you know what? Last year, I became 7% poorer. So today, I would like to go to my uh, employer and say, I want a higher wage. And, and by the way, I'm asking, 7% is the minimum, but you know, if I, I already lost 7% last year, and uh, if inflation doesn't go down to, to 2% or zero this year, I'm going to lose another... So if I, I'm in a bargaining contract, bargaining cycle, I'm not going to build in just the 7% of last year. I'm going to be the 7% of last year plus the whatever I expect this year, let's say. So I want to, let's say that I want a 10% increase. So, so now all of a sudden, everybody, and we've seen that in restaurants, everybody finds their cost going up by 10 or 15%. And... Uh, if demand was low, they will probably try to absorb part of those costs. But if demand is high, they're going to translate that, that cost in, 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 into higher prices. And that's what generates the spiral. So I was reading um, a blog post by Stephanie Kelton. So for the, uh, actually on Substack. So for those of our listeners, I don't know that we've actually mentioned her name. So the, the concept of modern monetary theory is closely associated with um, it was the most prominent, I think, proponent of it, or at least the most, I don't know, has the biggest following, Stephanie Kelton, who, if I'm not mistaken, is a, is a professor of economics at um, Sunnybrook. If I, I'm trying to remember. I should, I'm embarrassed that I don't remember that. I think you're right, yeah. 
So uh, she actually had a, but for those of our listeners who are readers of the New York Times, there was an article published, interestingly enough, just 10 days ago. So that, that we couldn't have planned that. So if you go, uh, we're recording this on February 16th. So if you go back and find your issue or, you know, have your online subscription, it's uh, the February 6th issue, I think. And uh, so there's a write-up there. But in her, on her Substack article, she deals with this question of inflation. And she says, I'm asked this all the time. How does MMT deal with this? And she says, I, I always, I've, I've answered this a million times. I'll say it again. It, you have to think about it in two parts. Modern monetary theory doesn't have an answer for inflation once it's kicked in. It has an, it has an answer for inflation to help how to avoid it. And so I, so I do want to at least reference the fact that she's given thought to this. And uh, on, the, on the subject of avoiding, though, I think it's a little bit, and this is you know, my, my perspective on this, it's a little bit um, slippery insofar as it, it relies on people having um, the capacity to foresee what sorts of dynamics in the economy would lead to inflation. And in fact, it's sort of, it's, I think it resorts to this, this fallacy of the experts. If we just get this, the Congressional Budget Office to do an analysis of any sort of proposed spending and what impact that that would have on inflation in various sectors, then we know we've reached the limit. I, th- I think that's allowing too much, that's giving too much credit to experts. I think the economy is just too dynamic. It has too many moving parts for experts to know in advance precisely how that's going to work. So, but nonetheless, to her credit, she has addressed it and, and that, that's her essential answer. Can't fix it after the fact readily, but you could prevent it if you were think, giving thought to, to what, where the problems might rear their ugly heads. Let me, before you, I just wanted to back up to it just to augment that point with, with what actually happened in the spring of 2020 and even heading into 2021, because the experts, the Fed kept saying there's no inflation, whatever signs of this are transitory. And there was a piece I recently read in which the Fed predicted that inflation would stay at under 2% in either 21, 2021 or 2022. And there was a piece written in the New York Times saying, you know, the Fed's economists are generally right. And so those of you who think inflation is coming, you know, basically the Fed, the Fed knows what it's doing. And at the same time, you had more skeptical people, uh, including those in the financial markets coming out and saying, there is no way we're not getting inflation after this, given this one-two punch of fiscal and monetary policy. And what, what Luigi discussed about the just sheer amount of money being pumped into the system so quickly. And those in charge said, no, 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 no inflation. So just to back up your point that, yeah, it's all well and good to be able to say we'll spot inflation when it starts happening, except we just have living evidence, um, life in motion of trying to spot inflation when it's happening. And well, anyway, Luigi. I want to defend a little bit the experts because there were a lot of economists that uh, did predict that inflation will will come out. Uh, Now, it's not probably the most charming of all the economists, but Larry Summers uh, was pretty uh, aggressive in saying upfront that inflation would be coming. And he was absolutely right. And the problem is that nobody wanted to listen. I think that uh, in, this is, has been, in my view, uh, the collateral damage of this MMT uh, is that uh, we don't want to hear the bad news. If you start to bring... Uh, uh, this idea that we can have the cake and eat it too. Saying, you know, if you eat the cake, eventually you will gain weight. I, I don't think is uh, uh, a crazy idea. Now, sure, you can have some uh, 
special regime in which uh, you eat the cake and don't gain weight. But uh, most of the time you do, okay? But if you start spreading the idea that uh, all this uh, business that uh, eating cakes and gaining weight is completely ridiculous, uh, people will eat more cake. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And, uh, and they don't want to hear. And then when somebody say, you know, look, look at your pants. They, they are tight because uh, you're gaining weight. No, no, no. This is like a, a false uh, uh, consciousness. And uh, this is like uh, you, you have a political agenda uh, and uh, whatever. And th the reality is that he was right. Different way. I think that's that's that. I love that example, Luigi, and that makes sense. But it's way more fun for money to be free than for money to cost something, right? So what gets in the way of spotting inflation is what gets in the way of everything, which is human nature. So you've given some people something and said, "This is free. We can do this. We can do this." Oh wait, we have to stop. There might be a warning sign here. I mean, the the, the natural human tendency is going to be to say, "Oh, that red flag is just transitory," because you don't want it to be a red flag. Uh, it's it's yeah, human the nature. The Fed is uh, missing inflation and making us all fat, I guess, Luigi, huh? <laughs> uh, in, in, indeed. No, no, but, but I think that one aspect that uh, we should not underestimate is what is the role of uh, media in general, but social media in particular, in uh, harassing the Cassandra that are needed to keep a system in place. So you need some people that, tell publicly the ugly truth because uh, you know cassandra for those of you who don't remember the story but she was right that the trojan horse was a trojan horse okay and she did not end up very well in history but uh, she was right and uh, uh, people should have listened to her but uh, i think that and and i think that the role of experts should be that one however we live in a consensus society so if you say something that is politically unappealing, uh, you get completely bombarded by uh, the other side saying that you are this, you're that, and, and they really harass online and offline. And so I think that uh, we are silencing the Cassandras, and that's the reason why we don't see the, the, the problems when it's coming. I think that's a really great point because it's the political connection. It's, it's this nexus between the, the expertise and then the political process that processes that expertise that I think is, is actually the, in the argument that I read, it's just Stephanie Kelton framed it in this particular blog post, seems to me to be the, the fundamental fallacy of this working which is the, the presumption is, is that if the experts, if we ask the experts first, how far can we go? They tell us you can go to this point, but no farther Then the political process will, will respectfully cease to persist in its spending at that point. And I don't believe that happens. I think that is, that's utterly a misunderstanding how the political process actually works. People, uh, people adopt the, what their, whatever their agenda is. They'll adopt a narrative that will support that, that, and then uh, pers persist until they, you know they're they're ousted. I suppose is is what, and they have another uh, you know day to fight in the future when they re recover their power. But I, I can I cannot see. People and by the way, Luigi, I was not trying to beat up entirely on experts. So you being an expert, with all due respect. So <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I I beat up on experts all the time, so I don't think that uh, it is a problem. And I think the experts tend to be uh, actually wrong a lot of time, precisely also because of this uh, political constraint. I think that uh, uh, it's not that people 
inside the profession don't don't see some problems is that uh, they don't come out because they, they, the incentives are not there. But there is another point to, to what you are saying that I would like to elaborate because uh, I find it pretty scary that she says, oh, we know how to prevent inflation, but once it's in, we don't know how to handle it. Because it's like saying, I, I recommend uh, control fires to keep up uh, uh, the, the, the forest problem in California. But if one goes out of hand, I don't know how to handle the situation. In a sense, if you if you play with fire, you know you need to know how to handle it when it goes out of hand. Because no matter how good you are, I think this this is uh, the importance of resilient system. Resilient system are the ones that are resilient to mistakes, are mistakes by experts and also to bad luck. Sort of, uh, you know, the expression "as happens, it does." And and if we have a system that if it happens, we don't know how to deal with it. Wait a minute! You don't want to give uh, uh, use that as as your theory because it does not have way to handle the problem. I think one of the that happens is back to that point that you you two were making, which I think is incredibly important. But I think one of the problems that happens is when there's a moral element introduced to arguments that perhaps shouldn't be moral in, in their nature. And there has been in this particular debate, because the Fed, I think due to a deep belief on, uh, on the part of many of the people there, they, they believe that unemployment is the scrooge and that, that the most important thing we can do is make sure we have, we have full employment. But it introduces this moral element to the, to the debate in the sense that if you say, wait, there should be a limit on spending. Wait, what about inflation? You are a bad human being who doesn't care about those at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. And in reality, we should be able to separate those two things out, right? Should this, is this the right policy? Will it contribute to inflation? What are the economic effects and how do we take care of people and create a more equal society. But when those two points get blended, such that anybody who raises a question is then a bad human being, and I'm, I'm speaking in, 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 in overly strong terms in order to make the point, but that's where the problem comes in. And I think in so much of our society, including this debate, we introduce emotion and morality into, into debates that really shouldn't be, really shouldn't have either one, because there are a couple different ways to look at them. But Bethany, you will have an opportunity to actually uh, look at the control experiment in action because uh, the European Central Bank does not have a dual mandate. The European Central Bank has only the mandate of price stability. So you can be uh, the most um, sort of uh, uh, caring person, but you should not, uh, at least according to your mandate, look at uh, unemployment. You should only look at price stability. Now, uh, there is inflation in Europe, less than there is here, but there is inflation in Europe. We'll see how they handle it. And this is uh, Christine Lagarde, who is a chairperson of the, the, the European Central Bank, um, came out with a very confusing speech the other day. So she's not exactly leading very clearly in that direction. So we'll see how different, uh, different uh, the outcome is due to the mandate. Is that in part because uh, in Europe you have such a much more robust social safety net that they don't feel it's necessary to have full employment as one of their objectives? Or is that just a, a, some other a byproduct of some other aspect of their history? I think historically is that uh, Germany was always very uh, hawkish against inflation. And uh, they will only agree to give up the Deutsche Mark for a euro under two conditions. Number one, that the central bank will be in Germany uh, because they wanted to have the political pressure, speaking of, in their country. And, and two, 
that there would be only one clear mandate, the one of price stability, to avoid uh, uh, anybody to do anything else. Well, I don't know how long we can keep talking with you, but I do have one other question, which is about the inflation. So one solution to essentially uh, reducing the real size of debt, inflation-adjusted size of debt, of course, is to permit a sustained period of excessive inflation. Because what that really does is then it permits you to pay back that $30 trillion and growing with um, an economy whose in nominal dollars is, is expanding more rapidly than perhaps the debt is, if that's possible. I don't know at this point. So, I mean, it's been sort of the secret, the secret remedy here is to essentially pull money from everyone's wealth by de deflating its value and then using those magnified nominal dollars to pay debt the, down the debt. Uh, so you can charge me with cynical, but how do you respond to that? First of all, I don't want to be too technical, but it's very important to distinguish between inflation and unexpected inflation. Okay, so um, if you, uh, w when you have an inflation of 2%, for example, was expected inflation 2%, the interest rate were reflecting that. And so you don't expect uh, really that the debt will be reduced by 2% per year because they're paying an interest, which is the 2% inflation plus some real rate. Uh, if you expect inflation of 2% and you get 7 uh, then de facto you are taxing every order of debt for 5% uh, and uh, redistributing that amount, which uh, if it comes to the, the government, you're, you're basically taxing every person the 5% and give it to the government. Uh, but uh, also in the private sector, you are redistributing between the borrowers and the, uh, and, and the lenders for, for that amount, uh, which is a significant redistribution. But that's the unexpected component. Then people catch up. So next time around, they're going to ask either a inf inflation close or a high interest rate. So uh, the, the impact of this uh, reduction in the debt is only for the surprise inflation. And, and, and that... Uh, and that's dangerous because if you want to use that, you have to keep people surprising up, okay? Which that's exactly what upper inflation is about because uh, I, I go to seven. Now, now you're starting to build uh, because people are not stupid. So eventually they're going to adapt that the inflation is going to be a seven, okay? And then I need to surprise you again. I need to go to 14, I also have one one final question. Uh, let's see if it's final. But it's if if I'm if I'm someone listening to this podcast as an investor, how can I use what we've just discussed to at least point me in the right direction of of how to invest or where 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 to look for opportunities? Just do the usual thing. The more you save, the more you're gonna you're gonna. Ha I, I don't know. I, I think it's a really fraught environment, and I think a lot of the people out there managing money have never seen a downturn, let alone an environment of rising interest rates. So, uh, Luigi's gonna have a more helpful answer. <laughs> Not much more helpful. I think it, I think Bethany is right that uh, it's it's a very tough environment to be in, especially I would say for uh, your median listener who is somebody that is kind of older. And so is very worried about uh, this risk because, uh, as we said earlier, uh, you're saying uh, uh, generally uh, the stock market is considered edge against inflation. Now, 
in the past has not done particularly well during the period of inflation, but uh, is, is better than the, the alternative, uh, which is having bonds, uh, especially nominal bonds. However, the stock market is, is really kind of uh, uh, very, uh, very pricey these days. Uh, the one other thing is to have real assets, uh, but it's not like the real estate market is not like in a, in a super boom. So uh, what you would like uh, is to borrow, especially the rates are still uh, pretty low, borrow and buy uh, uh, real estate assets. Uh, now, if you are young, that seems to be a very good strategy. Uh, but if you are old, uh, uh, you, you, are, you need to invest money, you know, want to borrow. So that's, that's a little bit more complicated. Um, so I think that uh, maybe diversifying a bit uh, uh, your currency holdings to say, you know, uh, in case uh, the, the dollar were to depreciate because uh, too many of them are printed, uh, owning uh, some uh, euros might not be, or, or Swiss francs might not be such a bad idea. So that's, that's one, uh, one strategy. Um, and the other try to invest in, uh, in stocks that... Uh, uh, do have uh, a, a good cash flow and tend to do well in period of uh, of inflation. Yeah, I was just going to say. Well, we I think you know we've covered a lot of territory here and we've gone an hour, so I really we I don't want to impose that much longer on your time. So thank you. I I just would say unless there's something else that we just wrap up, but. Bethany and Luigi, thank you so much for carving out time to talk with us and share the benefit of your knowledge and wisdom with our listeners. I just want to also just once again point our listeners to the Capital Isn't podcast and uh, as well as recent episodes, but also don't, don't forget to get back to that August 2020 episode on mon modern monetary theory and listen to the further development of this idea that they had prior to the, I think, are, are recognizing just what uh, was unfolding in the area of inflation. And um, so there's you know, other aspects of that discussion, especially with John Cochran, who was part of that conversation, uh, just a lot of benefit to, you can derive from that episode. Yeah, the, uh, I wanted to echo what Eric said. Bethany, uh, Luigi, thank you so much for joining us. For all the listeners, again, their podcast is called Capital Isn't. The website is C-I-P-A-T-A-L-I-S-N-T.com. They've uh, great episodes for you to check out. As Eric highlighted, the Modern Monetary Theory episode that uh, really inspired us, uh, along with Eric, your, uh, your client who asked the question and our listener to put this episode together so bethany luigi thank you very much again we really appreciate your time and joining us thank you for having us thank you yeah to all of our listeners please like subscribe give us five stars tell your friends and family this has been another episode of the retirement lifestyle show and we'll be back next week schedule a conversation with roshan adrian or eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through Arate Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. 
All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Well nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Well. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arte Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor, and securities through Arte Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library, and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.